one of the things you've heard me talk about that, that was, a, um, I don't know whether it was a key of youth ministry, but it was something that I was known for, is if I would walk up to somebody and say, hey, let's take a walk, walk with me for a minute, then at that moment, they were in fear and trembling of what I might be needing to talk to them about. And, and some of the, I didn't even realize I was doing that. And later some would be, do you realize every time you said walk with me, I was in trouble? I'm like, well, okay. And, and, and even now I've, with my own kids said, hey, you know, let's go out back and walk around for a minute. It's amazing how smart they are. And they're like, dad, no, no, well, just tell me what you need to tell me right here. Uh, <laughs> I, no, 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 let's take a walk. Dad, just tell me. No, <laughs> Today we have an experience where two disciples are taking a walk. And Jesus needs to teach them something. He needs to to come and he needs to come and correct. He needs to come to encourage, but he really just needs to be with them. And taking a walk to me is all those things. When I when I say take a walk with me, I'm trying to pull people out of the environment that they're in, pull them away from others to where we can just talk and be in relationship and work out whatever needs to be worked out. Yeah, it often included correction. And it often in- included maybe some enlightenment of what was happening. But that's what Jesus is doing here. And he comes and he enters into everyday life with these two disciples. And, and he's going to encourage and correct. Now the setting, we, ha- we have to understand where we're at because we've been going through Christmas. And it has been powerful for me personally to be studying through the crucifixion and the resurrection as we celebrate Christmas together. And that has been made this Christmas just an extraordinary Christmas of understanding the plan of God and appreciating the plan of God. But what they're at, this is Sunday, and we're going to see that in the text. They're Sunday, and Jesus was just crucified on Friday. And so they're just a couple of days removed from the crucifixion. These are disciples of Christ. These are followers of Christ, but not part of the 11. And now they've left Jerusalem. And, and they're on their way home. And, and they're wondering what is going on. And instead of believing the angels, instead of believing some of the stories, they had no proof. And so they are walking home from Jerusalem thinking that their Savior is dead and his body has been stolen. Or something else has happened to his, his body. And so they're discouraged and they're downcast. And we're going to see that. And, and they just don't see the bigger picture. They're struggling in their faith. They're struggling to trust God. And I wonder if any of us here as we come to the end of 2018 are struggling like that too. It, are, do we ever struggle with our faith? Do we ever wonder what God is doing or if God is doing anything? Because I have sometimes. And I know some of your stories and I know some of the situations. It is easy to not realize that God is at work and not realize what God is doing. But Jesus to these disciples showed up. And he said, let's take a walk. Well, actually, they were already walking. He joined them. And he did that to encourage and to correct. And so this morning, maybe if that's where we're at, this is an opportunity as well for Jesus to take a walk with us. And to come and through his words to these two disciples, instruct us, encourage us, challenge us, I think, to think of where do we get truth and what does truth look like. So turn with me to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. And we'll be looking at 13 through 35 today. Luke chapter 24. And we're right after the crucifixion. We're the day of the resurrection. And so that helps orient us to the story. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is a black hardcover one underneath a chair right around you. I'd love for you to take that, follow along. If you don't have one at home, please take that home as our gift to you. A chance for you to have God's Word. But Luke 24, 13 through 35. And we'll look at four different sections of this story. And the first section is verses 13 through 24. And it really portrays these disciples in a real way, what they're really feeling, what they're really struggling with. And so point number one in your notes is discouragement, disappointment, and disbelief. That's where they're at. That's real, right? I mean, sometimes we would say, oh, everyone's just all happy to follow. No, they are discouraged. They're disappointed. They're struggling with disbelief. And these are the results of trusting in appearances and circumstances of believing appearances and circumstances more than we believe the bigger picture and more than we believe what God is doing. So let's, let's explore this. Starting at verse 13. 
that very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus. And Emmaus was probably six, seven miles from Jerusalem. And, and they're leaving Jerusalem. These are two disciples, not one of the 11. We, we see that they come back to talk to the 11. Uh, there's all kinds of debate about who they are. And, and I'll just say this. One of them we know from the text is Cleopas. And the other, we don't know. Might be Luke, some have said, by the, the vividness of the description. Could be Cleopas' wife. But that's about all we need to say about that. We know it's two disciples. And that's what God lets us know. And so they're, they're going about seven miles from Jerusalem. In verse 14. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. If you were walking home the weekend of the crucifixion and then the events of the resurrection happen and you don't believe they're true, would you be talking about things? Yeah, and they're debated. The word for talking there is they're not quite arguing, but they are, they're hashing it out and debating. Well, what do you think happened to the body? What do you think about these angels? Uh, I think the women are a little crazy that they're telling this story. I don't believe any of it because I saw him on the cross and I know what the Romans do and he is dead. Now what are we going to do? Do you see what they're doing? And, and, and they're, they're walking along and they have seven miles to do this. And that's the setup. And what's interesting is this is one of the few stories where we as the reader know a lot more than the characters in the story. And and so it it can be a little humorous. The irony is thick as we go through this. But try to put yourself with your imagination into the place of these disciples. Their world is falling apart. They're discouraged. There's hints that the community of disciples might be collapsing because they're starting to leave and spread out because of the disappointment, the grief, the confusion. And quite frankly, before we get too, too hard on them, wouldn't we be doing the same thing? Wouldn't we be doing... The, I mean, if, if one of you came in and said, so-and-so who passed away is alive, and I, I didn't see him, but an angel told me, I'd be, I'd be getting you help. It, it would not be a normal thing that you would believe, especially if I had seen that person pass away. And so, so I think we have to put ourselves in their shoes and say, yeah, I understand. Everything they hoped and dreamed about seems to be falling apart. And they're talking and discussing and they're dealing with what appearances are and what they saw and how to, how to, to relate that with what Jesus said and who they thought he was. And in verse 15, Jesus enters the scene. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. And so he's, he probably comes up behind them and he's on his way from Jerusalem too. And that would have been normal. This is after the Passover and, and everyone just sort of spreads back out to their hometown. And Jesus takes a walk with them. Verse 16, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And we don't quite know how that is. Some have said, well, Jesus is, is in his glorified body and looks different. Uh, I, I think that God actually did what he said and kept them from recognizing him because Jesus is wanting to have this conversation both for them and for us. And this isn't the first time. Mary Magdalene didn't recognize him at first until God, Jesus chose to reveal himself. He, he chooses to reveal himself at just the right time in just the right way. But he wants to encourage them. So he wants them to open up about where they are first. He wants to interact with them. Now, now I think there's validity to he also wants them to know the truth of Scripture before they have the emotional aha of who he is. So whatever it is, Jesus keeps them from recognizing him in verse 16. Verse 17, and he said to them, what's the conversation you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. So what are you guys talking about? Hey, I heard you say something about angels and I don't know, but what are you talking about? And they stop in their tracks and they're just downcast because their world seems like it's falling apart. And, and the answer is just a, just a classic answer. We get to 18. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him. Really? Okay, I added that one. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem that doesn't know of the things that have happened there in these days? And, and he, he answers, this isn't as snide as I probably make it sound, but he's like, really, you don't know? Everyone's talking about it. And, and one of the things, remember, Luke is giving us a sure defense for salvation. And he's giving us a sure defense for the resurrection. And one of his points is, everybody knew he died. This wasn't done in secret. 
All of these events are out in the open. And so one of the theories is, well, you know, he was sort of crucified or maybe he didn't die or maybe not that many people. No, everybody in Jerusalem knew. It was the talk of the town. And so Cleopas answers, what? You don't know? Sort of ironic that he's saying that to Jesus. The one who was crucified. The one who three days later rose from the dead. The one who orchestrated all of the events. He says, don't you know? And Jesus, and he said to him in 19, what things? I love that answer. He's drawing them out. He's listening He's caring about them. Instead of just just blasting them with truth, he's letting them talk because he wants to bring them to a different conclusion and to a different state of where they are. What things? And then listen to this response because in this response, we begin to hear where their heart is at, where their spirit is at. Verse 19, And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, so they got to tell him who first, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, Mighty indeed in word before God and all the people. And the first thing we see is, is how they describe him. Did you catch the tense that they described him in? Who was a prophet. And this is a, a situation, not so much that they're, they don't know if he's a prophet or not anymore. They, they really believe he's a prophet of God. But a couple things there, they really believe he's dead. I, I don't talk to you in the, about you in the past tense unless I think you're no longer in existence. They really think he's dead. They were there. And this goes again. Luke is showing he really died. None of this nonsense about, oh, he was just sick or weak or passed out. He really died. His believers, his followers, his disciples thought he was dead because he was. But also it shows really a misconception of who Jesus was, right? Was he a prophet? Yes. Was he more than that? Absolutely, essentially, yes. He was God Almighty in human flesh. And they weren't, they weren't there yet. They didn't understand that yet. They were struggling with a wrong belief about Jesus. He was just a prophet. Now he's dead, just like all the other prophets. Yeah, I'd be discouraged too. In verse 20, they even go on, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. And I can just picture them saying that just with a real sad voice, downcast voice. This man we followed, and they're telling Jesus this. Jesus of Nazareth, this man we followed, he was a prophet. He was a great man of God, and now they crucified him. Our leaders crucified him. And you, you hear the angst, you hear maybe the anger, the frustration of all of the events piling on and coming into play. But it's interesting because the events that they were so downcast about weren't the complete truth. They weren't the whole of the events. They were, they were so bound by their perception of what had happened by, by their idea of what the truth was that they couldn't get past that. And we'll talk about that in a minute. But they were so discouraged by these things. And as we go through this text, we see three different ways mainly that they're discouraged. The first is they're discouraged because of their painful circumstances. This man whom we loved and followed is dead. We're hurting. We don't know what's coming. So they're discouraged because of painful circumstances. We get that way. We go through things that we just are, 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 are troubling. We go through difficult times. Life throws us a curveball. We think it's random. And we don't realize that God is in control and God is going to use that for His purposes. But those painful circumstances can discourage us. That was one of the problems of these two. And we go on and we see where they're at after that in verse 21. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. And we see now really a a deeper issue. This was our hope. We hoped he was the Messiah. We hoped he was the one that would take care of Rome, that would bring us our freedom, our political freedom, our national freedom. And when we start to get into hopes and expectations, that's a dangerous territory for us, for all of us. 
For them, the second reason they were discouraged was because of unmet hopes and expectations. They had this idea of who Jesus should be, how He should act, and when He didn't conform to their image, discouragement sets in. Discouragement because of unmet hopes and expectations. Because God didn't work as expected. And this is one that I see, that that I struggle with and I see others struggle with more than anything. Painful circumstances, maybe we can get past. Those those can, can work themselves out. But when we deal with the deeper idols of hopes and expectations and those aren't met, those deep hurts are hard to not become discouraged from. They're hard to let go of because it goes to our very soul and what we want and what we desire and what we think is going to happen. And they say, we hoped He would redeem Israel. This was a huge hope. And so we get discouraged when those hopes and expectations aren't met in our way, in our time. And we're really trying to control God. We're truly, really trying to, to say, God, this is how you should act. And it's idolatry. Idolatry. But, but it's really interesting what they say. We'd hope that he was the one to redeem Israel. And that word for redeem is to pay with the price, to, to, to pay for a slave or to pay for a servant with some sort of price. The beauty of it is that's what Jesus did. That's what he did. He paid for their lives. He paid for their salvation with the very price of his own blood, but they didn't see it yet. They didn't see the bigger picture. They didn't see what God was doing. I wonder sometimes through this if Jesus wasn't tempted to chuckle. Now, I think because of his empathy and his love, he didn't because he was caring for these two. But to, to, to have someone say, we, we hoped he would redeem Israel. He's like, I did. Two days ago on the cross. That's what was happening. He's going to get there, just not with my sarcasm. They go on to say, now it's the third day. Third day and and crazy things are happening. They're going to go on to say, and and it's interesting because Luke uses that because he already twice before has has quoted Jesus as as saying, on the third day I will be raised. And so this is something they should have in Luke 9.22. He said, the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Jesus said this. He warned people. They didn't put it together. Because they were discouragement does this to us. Depression does this to us. It gets us so locked in to one way of thinking that we can't see the bigger picture. And Luke is using the same words. In Luke 18 as well, Jesus said the same thing multiple times. He said, I will be killed, but on the third day, it's going to change. I'm going to be resurrected. And here they use the same words, but not to say he's resurrected, but they say on the third day, weird things started happening. Women started saying they saw angels in the next verse. Things that we just can't believe. So we get to 22 through 24, the reports. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. At that point, you you have hope. Okay, maybe they get it. Maybe they think Jesus is alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb, found it just as the women had said. But him they didn't see. And that phrase is a key phrase to let you know where they're, they're at. They're still struggling with doubt. They're still struggling with unbelief. This isn't celebration yet. This isn't saying, oh, Jesus rose from the dead. This is, these are just stories. We didn't see him. No, if he's really alive, I would have seen him. What I'm experiencing is my truth, is my reality. And I didn't see him, so he must not be alive. See, they're still stuck in their perceptions. And that's the third way we get discouraged, is we get discouraged when we can't see past our own perceptions. They couldn't see any other narrative than theirs. Jesus died. We saw it with our eyes. He must be still alive because I don't see any other way that this could go. And so if we have an empty tomb and women seeing they've seen angels, then there must be some other explanation. They're crazy. The body's stolen or whatever else could have happened. 
that the proof was all there. If they just would have seen it, the proof was there. But they aren't even considering the resurrection. It doesn't fit into their paradigm. And again, I see myself and I see us so much in these two disciples. Because we get caught into ways of thinking. We get caught into paradigms of of who we think God is. What we think our reality is. And we can hold so stubbornly to our own views and perceptions that we often forget we can be wrong. We don't like to be wrong, right? They were wrong. Their perceptions all seemed to support what they were saying, but they were wrong. Even though everything appeared to validate their view, they were wrong. And Jesus is gently showing that. Now, now how? How do you get stuck in something like this? And, and in the last couple of years, we've had a, a term that's been thrown around, echo chamber. Have you heard that, that term? And what it is, it's, it's usually used in politics, but I think there's some, some fitting things there. In politics, we come up with one sort of view, or in life, we come up with one sort of view, and then we collect people around us that support that view, right? And then we can say, oh, I think so-and-so. And they're like, yeah, you're right. That is so true. I think, yeah, you're right. I'm so- And that's an echo chamber because we are just getting people that are saying the same thing that we believe around us. And what what happens in human nature is we come out of those discussions thinking, I'm right. They validated me. They told me I was right. Everyone else is wrong. And we see that politically. We see that with all kinds of views that we hold You know, we see that, I see that in churches sometimes that are health and wealth churches that are teaching heresy, that are taking people to hell with what they're believing because they're not following the gospel. But you get a whole bunch of people around saying the same thing and it feels right. And the disciples are talking about this and they're they're valid. They, They all think that the resurrection isn't a possibility. They were wrong. They, they were discouraged when they didn't need to be discouraged. They were discouraged because of circumstances. They were discouraged because of unmet hopes and dreams. They were discouraged because they couldn't get past their own perceptions. Oh, village, isn't that us? Isn't that us when we, when we, when we want to doubt God? When we want to doubt where He's at? And, and, I feel for these guys. And didn't you feel it a little bit this morning when we sang the last song forever? And the first couple of verses talk about the crucifixion and the death. What if we just ended the song right there? And that'd be discouraging. Our Lord and Savior would still be in the tomb. But then that song swells and reminds us, no, no, he's alive. He rose and he's alive. Discouragement, disappointment, and disbelief. These are the results of trusting in appearances and circumstances over the truth of God's Word, over the truth of what God is doing. Now, now, a couple places I want to go with this as we, we apply this point. We need to be looking at our own lives and say, how many times do I hold on to dreams and, and expectations and I get angry at God for not doing what I want Him to do? Because then we're doing the same thing. And we're not seeing the bigger picture that we're going to see Jesus start to unfold in the next point. But, but how many times, even before that, beyond that, how many times do I get people around me and, and, and I, I take a view that I'm so strong in my view that isn't necessarily a core of Scripture. I'm so strong in that view that I can't be wrong and I'm willing to trounce on other believers and I'm willing to just deface everyone I can on Facebook over a, a, a disagreement. How many times do we let our attitudes about things and, and our, our rightness about things control us? Because theirs was controlling them. You know what? If, if, if I had a New Year's resolution for us, it would be the ability to say, I might be wrong. I might be wrong in that. To each other. Our ability to say that to God when, when we're discouraged. When relationships aren't working out like we think they should. When jobs aren't working out. When family isn't working out when there's hurts, when there's expectations, 
I might be wrong in my perceptions. I might be wrong. Just for fun, can you say that with me? See if you can. <laughs> I might be wrong. That's awesome. If we can go into this year, that'll change our relationships. Now, now let me just categorize this. Unless it's clear in God's word. If it's clear in God's word, if it's one of those essentials, I'm not wrong because it's not me that's deciding, it's God's word that's saying it. Right? Amen? But I might be wrong about everything else. Because I'm, I'm not God. I'm not God. So let's not get so worked up about being right. Let's not get so worked up about these things that we sacrifice community. Let's not get so worked up about these things that we sacrifice relationship with God. I might be wrong. You and I might be wrong about vaccines or no vaccines. Ooh, ooh, it just got real. (laughs) You and I might be wrong about food choices. Fast food versus organic. (laughs) The day Pastor Ron gets kicked out of the church. (laughs) You know what? We might be wrong about parenting styles and how we're telling others how to parent their kids. We might be wrong about an education choice that someone else is making. We might even be wrong about who the best baseball team is in the league. Although that might, no, 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 just kidding, that's. But then you might be wrong that God is not near. You might be wrong when you think he's forgotten you. You might be wrong when your circumstances are trapping you and keeping you from drawing near to God because you're angry with him. You might be wrong that he is silent. Don't let your circumstances define your beliefs. Let the Bible define your beliefs. And so we get to the next section. We get to the next section where Jesus begins to change the narrative and he begins to open their eyes. And and, and we're going to see this in, in successive points. But in verses 25 through 27, we see belief, the word, and encouragement. Belief, the word, and encouragement. The Bible gives us everything we need to know to combat discouragement by trusting God, seeing his hand, and knowing Jesus. I know it's a lot of words. I couldn't leave any of it out. Because catch it, the Bible gives us everything we need to know to combat discouragement by trusting in God, seeing his hand, seeing how he works, seeing how he has worked, how he is working, and knowing Jesus. We often don't see God's hand because we forget the big picture of God's work. And our narrative is our own picture of how things should be done. And so in 25 through 27, Jesus says, walk with me. Let me correct. And he said to them, oh, foolish ones. Okay, at that point, you're like, oh, (laughs) oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter glory? And Jesus begins to lay down truth here and he shows how God's word points to Christ. He shows that this is the story of scripture. This is the bigger point. And in 25 and 26, he is pointing out that their failure, their discouragement is because they didn't understand God's word. He's not pulling any punches. He says, if you knew God's word, if you believed it, you would not be discouraged right now. You wouldn't be sad. You wouldn't be confused because God's word is sure and it is clear and it is there for us to read. And in 26, he says, yeah, sure, prophecies predicted a Messiah. But, and I could picture in his mind, he's going to go there in the, the next verse. But in Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, we see a suffering Messiah. We see a sacrificial system throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. And Jesus is saying, no, if you knew Scripture, you'd know that there must be suffering first. This is part of it. The Christ must suffer, Leon Morris writes, but that is not the end of it. He must also enter His glory. God is not defeated. He triumphs through the sufferings of Christ. Amen? Amen. 
In fact, this plan of redemption requires it, but they don't see it. Jesus' pattern is suffering and glory. It's throughout the Old Testament. It's often the pattern for people that follow Christ. Suffering in this world and glory. But then in verse 27, just one of my favorite verses here. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Best Bible study ever. He didn't even need a Scottish accent to be an expert on this. And we see Jesus for the rest of their walk begin to just expound on Scripture. Now, now do you catch what Jesus is doing? His authority. What is he using as his authority? God's Word. By the way, he's using the Old Testament in case we're tempted to just throw that, that puppy away. And Jesus, throughout the Old Testament, he goes through the whole story and he shows it all points to me. It all points to the Messiah. And I can just picture, I can picture him starting with Genesis 3. And, and I don't know, this is, this is imagination. It just says he went through all of the Old Testament in seven miles, which is really cool. I can just picture him starting with Genesis 3, though. And so remember the fall? Remember the curse of the fall and, and, and what, what God said to Eve? And he said that he will bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. Your offspring will crush his head. That was referring to a Messiah that was going to come and defeat Satan. I can picture him going on to Genesis 22 and Abraham and Isaac and the sacrifice. He said, do you remember Isaac was going to sac- or Jacob, Abraham was going to sacrifice Isaac? But I provided a substitute, a ram for that and saved Isaac. Do you remember that? And he goes on through scripture. Maybe he talks about the Passover and what the blood on the doorpost represent and that the Passover lamb, the sacrificial lamb would atone for their sins. Maybe he talked through the different sacrifices. Maybe, and I, I, would, I would bet that he went through Isaiah 53. He said, by his stripes you're healed. The, the, the Messiah had to suffer, had to take on your sin on himself and pay that for you to have salvation. Do you remember Zechariah 12, 10? said he would be pierced. Jesus was pierced. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What did you hear Jesus say at the cross? Like, oh, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And in this study, God, Jesus is bringing out through God's word who he is, what the plan was, all things they knew or could have known if they had been in God's word. And he shows them the bigger picture that God is redeeming creation back to himself. If you want a picture of the Bible, if you want a single statement that talks about the story of the Bible, it's God is redeeming creation back to himself through Jesus Christ. And the cross and the resurrection is the center point of that. It's the center point of the whole story. It's the most important point of the whole story. And so Jesus begins to draw them back to the bigger picture of what he's doing. But do you see what he's doing? He's breaking through their perceptions. He's breaking through their false beliefs. And he's bringing truth of God's word to bear on the situation. Everything in the Old Testament is leading up to him. Everything after is helping us live in light of him. He is the center point of the story. And they know this. In John 5, 39 and 40, Jesus is talking. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. It is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Paul said the same thing to Agrippa. Philip said the same thing to the eunuch. And they used scripture to show how it all points to Christ. But here's the thing, especially spiritually, we can evaluate things by our own perceptions our own perspective. But God is saying, look at his word, look at his plan. There is no circumstance you are in that is outside of the hand of God. I don't care what it is, God can redeem that and use it for his plan. I don't care how bad it is, God is using that for his glory. We know that from his word. But we struggle to believe it, village. Do you believe that every situation you're in, God can use for his glory? Because that 
changes the narrative. The big picture changes how we interpret the little picture. I want to put a picture up of some corn stalks. Okay? If you're in the middle of a field and there's just corn everywhere, number one, it's easy to get lost, right? This can be frustrating. You just see a little path and you're like, this is worthless. But have you ever been through a corn maze? How many of you have been to a corn maze? A handful of us. I've been to them a couple times. They're awesome. If you, if you zoomed back and looked, this might be what you would see. Now you're not so upset about being on the path with the stalks because you know that you're just in a really cool corn maze. <laughs> and, and you're going to get to the end and say, yeah, I solved the, the Star Wars. Here's another one. That they, they have these all over the nation. This is an actual overhead picture of a field. Greetings from Earth, the, pl- the pale blue dot. I guess so the aliens can see it as they're coming in along with the Star Wars theme. But if you know that and you know that you've gone to the corn maze knowing there's an X, doesn't that change how you feel as you're going down the pathway? For some of you, maybe not. I'm still frustrated. But it should change because we see the bigger picture. And Jesus is telling his disciples, don't just focus on the stalks of corn that seem to be blocking your path. Focus on the bigger picture of what God is doing. Here's the lesson. We often struggle with discouragement. We often struggle with God because we haven't studied God's word or we forget his promises and who he is. It's the bottom line. We struggle with discouragement. We struggle with anger of God because we forget his promises and we haven't been in God's word. If you are struggling in life today, if you're at the end of the year, you're like, man, I just don't know even how to continue. My first question has to be, are you in God's word? Because this is the source of truth. If you're not here, it is so easy to believe other narratives. It is so easy to believe that those circumstances are all there are. Go to God's Word. Study it. Read it. Enjoy it. Go to texts like this where God is changing their perspective because He's bringing truth in His Word to bear on it. This wasn't the end of hope. This was the beginning. Don't miss truth. Don't miss your anchor. Don't miss the life ring that's thrown at you when you're drowning. Do you believe God is alive? Do you believe he's risen? Do you believe he's with you? John Wesley once came down from breakfast in a melancholy mood. He was miserable. He was down. Sensing the situation, his wife went upstairs, dressed in black, and came down to join him. Who's dead, Wesley asked. God, she replied. Oh, no, no, he said. No, he's not dead. And his wife responded, I thought so from your countenance and conduct. Wow. If people look at you this week, do they see the disciples that think Jesus is dead and not with them? Or do they see the disciples that know that God is present and here in every situation because he's risen from the dead? What message are we messaging to people that see us, to those around us? And so they're struggling. They're struggling, but God comes onto the scene and God opens their eyes. And we get to 28 through 32. Now it just gets fun. God has, Jesus has has through scripture shown them that what they believed was wrong and and their hearts are, are starting to accept this. They're starting to understand it. And now Jesus just in, enjoys time with them, I think, and, and gives them further realization. Point number three, the eye-opening realization. When, when the, the aha moment, I like to say, of the story, Jesus opened their eyes to who he is in the context of ordinary community. Jesus opened their eyes to who he is, and he does it in the context of ordinary community. Start at verse 28. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. So they're almost to Emmaus. They're getting there seven miles. 
He, being Jesus, acted as if he were going further. So they're walking along, and they get home, and, and the two say, oh, this is where we live, we're here. And he goes, okay, I'm going to go further. We, you know, it's a it's long, long way for me. Maybe he didn't say that, but he said, I'm going to go further. And they said, no, 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 stay here. It's getting late. It's dangerous to walk these paths at night. So in 29, they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And they showed him the hospitality that would have been expected. The hospitality. That, now, Jesus isn't lying here. Sometimes I mean, well, Jesus is lying. He's playing a trick. No, no, he would have gone further, probably, if they hadn't have asked him to stay. But they did, and so he stayed. And so they come in, and, and they're going to be good hosts, and they make a meal. And in verse 30, when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. He did what was normal at the beginning of any meal, what he had done before at meals, what he did with the feeding of the 5,000. He did this at the Last Supper, although they probably, these two probably weren't there, and some see this as an allusion to the Last Supper. I think that's, that's a difficult um, jump to make here. I think it's more just in the, the ordinary life of community. And what's interesting is Luke, as we've studied through Luke, do you realize how many times Jesus goes in for table fellowship with people? He did it with sinners and publicans. He did it with Zacchaeus. He is often going in and eating because that's where normal life happens. And he wants to be part of normal life community. Meals weren't just like a five-minute throw a frozen burrito into the microwave and eat it and leave thing for them. Meals were an event that said, no, we're going to talk. We're going to be together. And Jesus intentionally entered into people's lives in that way. And here he does it again. He's at a table with them. He took the bread, blessed it, and broke it and gave it to them. And 31 and 32 are the aha moment of the story. They're the climax of the story. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Can you imagine that feeling at that moment? This man who had been walking with you for the last couple hours, explaining all scripture to you, now suddenly breaks bread and he prays and blesses it and your eyes are open, you're like, this is Jesus! He's alive! He really is! And it blows their mind. Now some have said, you know, how did he, he do it? Again, if God kept them from seeing it, God could remove that and let them see. Maybe they saw the scars on his hands as he was giving the bread. I don't know. Maybe they put it together. This is the same way he blessed the, the food at the 5,000. Or maybe God just worked. And I'm fine with that. And then the end of 31, and he vanished from their sight. He's in his glorified body, and he vanishes from their sight. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while we talked it on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And this realization of who he is, and that he's risen, and that he is alive, and all of their perceptions were wrong as they ate together, as they were in community together, those just were stripped away. And they're like, do we realize what, what our hearts were telling us as he was explaining scripture? I should have known. Ever had one of those moments? This is that on, on steroids. Just, just so, so much bigger. And I love the image of our, didn't our hearts burn within us? And the idea of their hearts burning is a couple things. Number one, the, the word used is to ignite a fire, to ignite a flame, to ignite an excitement. And so it tells us that as Jesus is explaining God's word, scripture, they're getting excited. They're like, yeah, that's right. Yeah, Isaiah said that. Yeah, that makes sense now. And, and it is warming their cold hearts. They're discouraged hearts. That's what God's word does. Our hearts burning inside also has the idea of convicting. And I think Jesus was using God's word to convict. And so they have this strong desire to respond to God's word. And they're like, didn't scripture burn within us while he opened it to us, while he explained it? And their eyes were open. In the context of ordinary, an ordinary meal, their eyes were opened to who Jesus was. You know, one, one of the things, and this, this isn't just drawn from this story, but all of Luke. Why does Luke keep bringing up meals and, and coming together in community? 
I think it's because in the context of community often is where we fight some of our wrong perceptions, some of our wrong ideas about Christ. It's in the, in the, the concept of community where we're iron sharpens iron and we can have others hold us accountable. And it's not just us with our own view of God and what God might be doing and how he's abandoned me. But others can say, well, no, see this, see what God is doing. We need to be part of each other's lives. Jesus was. That should be enough right there. Jesus was. He made time to be part of each other's lives. And we need to have that with people that are our godly community for us. People that will bring God's word to bear. Authentic community where they will use the word and our brothers and sisters will use the word to counter our wrong perceptions, to counter our discouragement. God intended his church to be family. He intended us to be part of that family. When we neglect that, we are neglecting one of the tools God uses to teach us truth. Through the pulpit, through each other. And we're neglecting how God is trying to reform our our crazy ideas about life sometimes into ideas that are more consistent with Scripture. But if we aren't here, or if we aren't in a a God-fearing church, a Bible-believing church, that cannot happen. And we will wither, and we will fade, and the embers will go out. Don't underestimate the power of community. Now, I'm not just saying that because I want a lot of people here on Sunday. I'm saying that because I have experienced the benefit of a brother or sister in Christ here coming up and putting their arm around me and saying, I'm praying for you and praying for me. I've experienced people here telling me, you know, I think you're wrong on that point. And I had to say, I I might be wrong. (laughs) And I've experienced God's love and God's care through you at Village. That's how God intended community to be and godly community to be. We need each other. This isn't a a solo event. We need each other. We need the accountability. We need the encouragement. We need the support. Jesus went in and ate with them. He didn't just drop truth on them on the road and say, see ya, hope you get it. He went in and ate. That's significant. One author, and I I loved what they said, um, Dr. Barton was talking about, we can learn a lot, and this is a, a side application, but I think it's a good one. We can learn a lot even about how to deal with friends and family and how to reach them with the gospel by studying the story. And think about the model that Jesus gives. First, he walks with them. He joins in their activity. He joins in their context. Then he talks with them and enters their discussion. He listens. You want to reach people for Christ? Learn how to listen. Learn how to ask good questions. Find out where they are. Then then Jesus utilized Scripture and the truth of Scripture to deal with unbelief. And then he shared a meal with them for the sake of friendship. Jesus opened their eyes to who he was, and it was an aha moment, but he did it in the context of community. And then the last three verses, we get the response. They responded by going back and confirming to the apostles that Jesus was alive. And this is sort of a postscript to the story. You, you have what happened. You have the climax. And this is how they respond. This is the answer to it. And they rose that same hour... Keep in mind, it's late in the day. We're still on Sunday, guys. Jesus just rose that morning. They don't care about the the, um, danger now. They rose that same hour. They returned to Jerusalem, and they found the 11, and those who who were with them gathered together. And they're saying, "The, the Lord has risen indeed. This is what the 11 are saying to them. The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Now, it's interesting, this appearance to Simon, it's mentioned in 1 Corinthians 15 as well. We have no other details about it. But somehow Jesus came and just had a moment with Peter. And I think that's significant after everything that happened with the denials and everything else. He just had a moment with Peter. But, but the, the 11 are saying, the Lord has risen indeed. He's appeared to Simon. And then the two told him what happened on the road. He made known to him during the breaking of bread. Again, Luke is focusing on that. And so they go back and they're an encouragement to the 11. The 11 are encouraging encouragement to them. 
They're confirming to each other that Jesus was alive. They're confirming truth to each other. And what's interesting, back to the idea that Luke here is, is saying we can be sure of salvation, we can be sure of the resurrection, we now have two witnesses on a road that saw him alive. We have 11 witnesses. And all these witnesses are coming together and he's making a case that Jesus really did rise from the dead. Because everything hinges on that. If Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, then sin is not defeated, it is not fully paid for, and he's still paying for it in the, in the grave. If he hasn't risen from the dead, then he's not with us. He's not present. But he has. And he is. And they're confirming that to each other. And Luke is showing that there's witnesses. And the community we see here has gone from discouragement to ecstasy. It's gone from despair to joy. Why? Because of God's word and Jesus' presence what lessons we can have for remembering that Christ is is resurrected. He's risen. Remembering that he's with us. Remembering the truth of God's word. There's so much in this text to help us figure out how to deal with despair. But the answer always comes back to who Jesus is and what his word says. Don't neglect that today. Don't neglect his promises. Lord God, Oh, to take a walk with you. Lord, you've you've given us a way to through your word. Because your word can speak into our lives and your word can speak to the despair and the discouragement and remind us of your power, of your promises, of your faithfulness, of your love, of your grace, of your plan. Lord, help us to be a people that this next year do all things for your glory and aren't discouraged, uh, discouraged people that aren't a despairing people because we know who our God is and we know that he's alive and we know that he's at work even when circumstances may appear otherwise. Lord, encourage us with the truth of who you are. Thank you for your resurrection. Thank you for your care for these two disciples, two ordinary disciples on some podunk road to Emmaus that you appeared to the first day. They were important enough to you to go in and eat. Lord, thank you that we are your disciples and that you love each of us that same way. May we be a people of your word this next year, a people that cling to your promises faithfully and do not doubt you. In your name, amen.